0: This is Bass Edge Radio. Welcome to the November edition, where we will keep you on the leading edge of tips and tactics from successful fishermen and professional anglers across the country. The Bass Edge podcast is presented by Keelguard, a Bass Edge supporter since 2006. KeelGuard is the first do-it-yourself keel protector and a great addition to any watercraft. Be sure to like KeelGuard's fan page and check out their Facebook and their entire line of products at KeelGuard.com. This is your Bass Edge co-host, Kurt Dove, and as always, we have Bass Edge anchorman Aaron Martin. Aaron, we have some great things to talk about this month. Let's get this kicked off.
1: Kurt, we have a full docket for today's episode. As always, two great anglers. First up will be BASS Elite Angler David Walker talking about spotted bass and fall fishing. Then we're going to venture out all the way to Osage Beach, Missouri to join the BFL Regional Champion Marcus Sakura. Well, he'll be taking us in-depth into jerkbaiting. Also, don't forget that Keelguard giveaway that we had touted so much throughout the course of the last few episodes. Well, those winners have been chosen to see if you won the $500 Complete Boat Package. Be sure to log on to either the Bass Edge Facebook page or the Keelguard Facebook page.
0: And as always listeners remember to stay up with the latest information on Bass Edge. Go to like the Bass Edge Facebook page and remind you to also send in your listener questions to info at BassEdge.com or post them on that Facebook page for a chance to hear your question on the show. Also make sure you log on to BassTackleDepot.com when making your next tackle purchase and get 15% off your entire purchase just enter the promo code b e that's like bass edge special hey all you fishing junkies stay tuned for more bass edge radio get it like that boy good
1: job
2: i don't know of any other sport that offers the challenge of bass fishing yet that's
1: full contact fishing right Man. there this is gonna be tough
2: but we'll
1: catch it this, this is a good place it's all about figuring it out what do you think of that
3: huh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yes,
4: I saw that. that was awesome. <laughs> Holy cow. You're listening to The Edge. Everything bass fishing from the Bass Edge Studios. High above Table Rock Lake in the Missouri Ozarks.
1: Well, Kurt, I'm a little confused because the last time I talked with you, you just told me you were getting on a boat and you would be unavailable for like seven days. Were you like uh, taking some fancy cruise or in a submarine or what? What was going on there?
0: Well, I tell you what, that's exactly what happened. My my wife and I are actually celebrating our 10 year anniversary this year. Wow! So, uh, congratulations. Yeah, thank you, thank you. So we were excited about that, and and we're able to uh, kind of check out, if if you will, for several days. And and uh, of course, what do you do when you're a fisherman? You get back on a boat. So that's what we did. We went on a cruise for a few days, and and we had a great time, and uh, just really enjoyed it. But but also had several other things going on at the same time. You know, I fished a tournament up at Smith Lake in Alabama. Got burnt, as you might say, by those spotted bass up there. Had a fun time nonetheless. Have you been to Smith Lake before? I have
1: not, but I've heard so much about it that is certainly on my bucket list of places to cast a line.
0: I tell you what, I had never been there. Probably one of the top ten prettiest lakes I've ever been to in the country. So uh, if anybody hasn't been in the Smith Lake and ever gets a chance to uh, wander through north central Alabama that's a great place to be and they've got some big spots up there saw a couple five pounders heard about several other giant spots up there so it was great but but it's been a busy time and, and I'm just happy to be back with Bass Edge on the radio and talking more about fishing you've been doing some fishing yourself you've had uh I remember last time we chatted we were getting ready for a Bull Shoals event how did that turn out for you
1: oh it was fun you know speaking of cruising and spotted bass I was doing a little bit of the same Bull Obviously obviously, Highland Reservoir, kind of an extension of part of the White River chain. Uh, you know, Beaver Table Rock, then Tanacomo, then Bull Shoals, Clearwater Reservoir. Typical. You know, back in October, that's when the fishing is just starting to transition, and, and the fish really, uh, you know, because of the, of the warmth, there really was not a defined thermocline. So you had fish that were starting to move in. The bait was starting to move into the back of the pockets. You had some shallow. You had a lot deep. I kind of went the the deep route because I just I felt more confident. First day, um, you know. I was running about 60 miles so speaking of cruising that was a a pretty good hike uh first day i was in contention was able to get the blacks to bite second day not so much you know i I was able to to kind of capitalize on some of those spots spotted bass are fun to catch but uh, i'm anxious to hear david walker here in a little bit because he's going to kind of bring us up to speed on the spotted bass and what they're doing but i will say kurt that lake is full of walleye and in during practice i was catching some monster walleye because the smallmouth were actually holding out around that 30 seven To 40 foot range out off those long tapering points. So I would bust a spoon to try and get them fired up because the fish were literally holding on bottom and you could not see them. I'd use that spoon to stir them up and get them to show themselves, and I'd come back with a drop shot and pick them up. But the thing was, dropping that spoon in there, those big walleye, and I'm talking five to seven pound walleye.
0: Mm, yummy. It, it
1: was fun. It was fun. <laughs> well,
0: you're making me want to run and get some lunch. Uh, <laughs> yeah,
1: I hear you. I hear you. But, you know, we're, we're kind of in that transition. And I think the deeper into November that we get, uh, that water cools down, and I think it's doing nothing but getting better and better as far as fishing.
0: Yeah, i got to agree, Aaron. We are definitely moving completely out of the transition phase. And here in November, smack dab in the middle of the fall, all those things you read about are really happening this time of year and, and during the month of November before it, it transitions over into the winter pattern. So uh, a lot of really fun ways to fish happening right now. Visually, you can see a lot of bait and do a lot. A lot of visual fishing as far as understanding how the bait moves and uh, being able to target the bass within those so um i'm really interested to hear what david walker's got to say so let's get david on the phone and see what he's got to say about november fishing
3: keel guard, keel protectors. Hey, this is Kevin Van Dam. This is Brian Maloney.
1: Hi, this is Chris Lane, and thanks for listening to Bass Edge Radio. Joining us on Bass Edge is an angler whose fishing accolades, well, really reads like my daughter's Christmas list, a man who is a threat anytime he launches his boat, professional angler David Walker. Welcome to the show, David. Well, thanks, Aaron. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you, and I know that we're kind of currently in that I guess what many would consider the off-season if there is such a thing of competitive fishing are you totally unplugged from fishing you know are you out doing other things and if you are or not what's your theory behind that
2: for me now really when I come home I really do unplug from it because I fish so much that uh, when I come home normally what I do is I pack the boat in the garage and unhook it and forget it but then the events are coming at you, you know, a week in between, so it just gives me a little time to get away from that. But this time of year, before I was fishing big circuits, this was one of my favorite times of year to fish, and it was really two reasons. One is, you know, the weather's great, it's cool, fish are moving up shallow out of their summer fields, and, and the other one is is that everybody's going hunting, so the lakes are pretty much empty. (laughs) So you can go out there and put your boat in and go fishing and really not run into hardly any boats throughout the day.
0: Yeah, I got to agree with you, David. You know, now that November's coming up and uh, you know we've got a lot of transitioning going on. You've been fishing really well this time of year, you know, through your past track records. What are you going to go out and look for when you hit the water based upon these seasonal conditions that we're starting to see now in November?
2: Well, I tell you, in the fall of the year, shad is king. Springtime, it's all about spawning, finding those spawning areas, but uh, in the fall, where I live at, you know, where the shad is the dominant forage, that's what I'm going to look for. You look for them visibly, like Go back into a creek or pockets and look for that shad. It looks like it's raining back in there. And those bass are going to be searching those shad out, finding them. Your baits are going to be keyed into that. So I'll use shad imitating baits. So top waters are fun. Lipless baits, crank baits, spinner baits things along those lines that are going to imitate that shad, I've always enjoyed this time of year because of that because I kind of know what it is I'm going to go do before I get out there. So it makes it a little simpler.
0: Sometimes what I struggle with is when you get into some of those areas like you're talking about and you see all those wads of shad, do you like to use a bait that's you know, the same size, kind of a match the hatch type thing, or do you like to go a little bit bigger on your lure presentation or smaller? How are you trying to adjust of, of different types of presentations when there's so much bait in an area like you're talking about.
2: Yeah, some of those times it can be so frustrating. you be in a pocket and it's just one fish after another blowing up. You know, you're throwing a bait through there. It almost feels like you're dragging baloney to the steakhouse there. It's just <laughs> it seems like a bad idea. But, you know, if, if you get that lure close to the fish, that's what's going to be key. That fish is not going to run 20 feet to get your lure. But if you throw it right at him, so pay attention when a fish breaks and try to make a cast right to that area. And if, say, there's some uh, cover in the water that's going to be a key spot because there's going to be a fish move into that over and over and so it's one of those places where you catch fish off it go back a little bit later and catch another fish off of that same spot that spot will just keep reloading for you so getting the lure close to the fish is really important but I will try to match that hatch as well like I said a half ounce live target golden shiner is one of my favorite all time baits for those when I'm reeling it through that school of shad and that bass is ripping through them shad I like to throw that bait Right by it to that same area. And, you know, it does look like it, but, you know, it's, it doesn't sound like a regular shad. So it does have that sound and appeal where that's going to make it stand out from the others.
1: Hey, David, one quick thing before we move away from that topic, because I think it's very important. Whenever you're going back into the, the backs of the creeks and as the shad move back in, what's your theory when the bait is out in the middle and they're not right on the bank? Are you still targeting the bank or are you trying to move out to where the bait is kind of showing itself?
0: Now, you're going
2: to want to fish around where the bait is if it's out in the middle of the pockets and, you know, that's when I'll throw a, maybe a, a deeper dive crankbait or something where I want to bring my lure through where those shad are because that's where your bass are going to be. If it's really deep, many times you'll see the fish come up and bust on top and then that's where top water will come in because, you know, uh, with the top water you can catch fish no matter how deep the water is because they're using the surface as the boundary line in order to push the bait against it whereas when you get in that shallow water they'll use the bank or the bottom and sort of trap the bait in between there but when they're in that deep water they're going to use that surface as their trap you know to push the bait against the top and try to catch the bait then so you know that's when top water work uh, really well as far as you know catching them over really deep water but if it's say eight ten twelve foot of water in the middle of that pocket and that's where the shad are you know don't be afraid to throw a crankbait and run about that deep and just bring it right through underneath those balls of shad
1: well all good stuff there david the days are getting short. Shorter, which you know, scientifically speaking, that's talking about the photo period. You know, less light. Temperatures are on the decline. Cold fronts; those are kind of seem like every other day this time of year. You have wide gyrations of, of temperature fluctuations. How do cold fronts affect bass fishing this time of year? And then also. How do you adjust accordingly?
2: Well, like you said, I mean, this is the time of year for that. So cold fronts have a greater impact on the fishermen than it does the fish this time of year. Because these fish know winter's coming, and that cold it's kind of telling them, all right, you better hurry up and get the feedbacks on because it's getting cold. And uh, for me, I don't think it affects the fishing near like it does in the springtime. Springtime seems like a cold front comes through and man, the fish can get just awful. But in the fall, it seems like it has much less of an impact. And I'm sure that's because the fish, they know that's what it's supposed to be doing. That
0: makes a lot of sense. You know, David, we also use a lot of technical jargon when we're referring to different techniques or tactics in bass fishing. Uh, this is kind of a little off key here, but, you know, I'm really interested to hear what your definition is and your description is of finesse fishing. You know, we often hear about this kind of terminology, and and a lot of times we have to make these little adjustments, like like we've been talking about in in the fall time of year. And sometimes we've got to go to this finesse type presentation. and And if you had to describe it, what would your description of finesse fishing be?
2: I am not a finesse fisherman, and I, yeah, I do it, but I do it when it's necessary, not because. I don't like say, boy, this weekend I'd love to go out and do some finesse dishes. I just, <laughs> I, it's not something I look forward to doing. I do it because it's, uh, you have to, not because I want to. You know, you're going to use your spinning rod, you know, your egg beater there. You're going to be using that. You're going to be using a light line. And the reason you're doing that is twofold because you're using little baits and you can't effectively work a little bait on a flipping stick or a big rod with heavy line. So you have to match your rod and reel to the lure. So as the lure sizes go way down, so does your rod and reel compost.
0: I got you. And, and you know, you hear a lot of this other type of terminology, which they'll call finesse power fishing, which maybe maybe because you kind of shy away from from finesse fishing unless you just totally have to. What are some things that you would do to turn down your power fishing tactics to be more finesse like? Can you give maybe a couple of examples of how you would do that? Most of
2: the guys that one that just really can't stand using a spinning rod will figure out a way to get that bait caster to use more of the finesse type baits. And probably one of the main ones is, that you know, everybody refers to as a shaky head, a shaky head or a drop shot. And you can use those on a bait caster as long as you use a lighter line and use a little bit heavier. Myself, I've used shaky heads that are a quarter ounce in weight and use like a six-inch long straight tail worm instead of a finesse worm. So it's still the same look you know, you know we got the jig head with the straight tail worm but it's just a bigger uh-huh. version of it. it's something you can use on a bait caster you know and that would be my version of a power finesse fishing but I would much rather look for easier fish and so I'm gonna pick up and do a lot more running and gunning instead of trying to catch this fish that obviously doesn't want to bite I always figure there's another one out here that is
1: hungry and along those same lines you brought it up as far as you d- you don't do that unless you absolutely have to and, y- and so you're kind of using something as a trigger within your psychology to say, ah, I've got to pick this up, or I need to move spots and run and gun to find those biting fish that are going to respond the way that I like to fish. You know, the term, let the fish tell you what they want, it's a little comical in a way, but can you define what you're using to guide you and and to make those decisions?
2: Fishing is... We try to make it as scientific as we can because then that way it's uh, X equals Y, or if this happens, then do this, and it works every time. The problem with fishing in scientific versions is they just don't go together. Fishing is much more of a blend of science and art. It's more of an art form, so there's a whole lot of subtle cues you're going to be getting, and you put them together, and then you kind of use that as your guide because you can't always go by, you know, we we almost break it down, okay, well, it got cold, so I had to do this. Well, a lot of other things might have happened there other than just that it got cold. You know, there's fishing pressure, there's water color, This the lake you're going to, what size of the fish in there, do they get fished for a lot, you know, that has a lot to do with whether you're going to be finesse fishing, what time of the year it is, so there's an awful lot of variables that, uh for me, cue me as to what to do. Now, obviously, I said that I don't like to finesse fish, so the first thing I do is I try to figure out how to catch the fish the way I like to fish. Now, if those things absolutely don't work and I try everything in a book, then I'm going to go to that finesse fishing. So I'm going to start off on the top end of what it is I like to do and then work my way down from there. So basically, when I go to a new lake, I try to use the techniques that I feel that are best suited for me, my strengths, and then work down from there. So I don't go into it, try to fish my weaknesses because normally you're setting yourself up for a mediocre finish.
0: Recently, you were down in Alabama, had a top five finish on what's known as a spotted bass lake. And looking over your historical record, you've done pretty well fishing for spotted bass. So let's talk a little bit to our listeners about what the major differences are between spotted bass and largemouth bass behavior and how you might go about changing tactics to catch one versus the other.
2: You know, spots to me, are probably the most consistent fish. And when it comes to fishing for largemouth spots or smallmouths, it seems like the spots are much harder to find a time when they won't bite. They just seem like they tend to group up more, um, especially by size, and they also tend to be like... We don't care. We're gonna. We're eating today, no matter you know, don't care if it's money or not. They don't care, which is cool because normally, if I find an area where I feel like there's a bunch of spots there, that to me is just you know, thank it. There's five right there because these guys are gonna bite. They don't care what happens. But the problem is, there's only a few areas in the country where the spots are large enough, weight-wise, to compete with fishing against the guys that are gonna be bringing in large mouths. So. Many times a spot to me is filler in that limit. Uh, maybe I'll go to it and get my limit of spots, or stick with them and try to upgrade some, knowing the whole time that I need a couple big large mouse. To really make this a good stringer so for me spots have always been a consistent way to fill your limit get that five fish but they're not been a really good way to win an event because like i said there's not that many places in the country where the size of them are that great
1: so you feel that out of the what i would consider the three species largemouth smallmouth and, and spotted bass the spotted bass are probably the most active slash predictable then Yes, yeah. and
2: if you get to lakes where, say it's a, a generating thing where, you know, they turn the turbines on at a certain time, I mean, you can set your watch to those spots. They are gonna bite. That's just their nature, I guess. They're just a little more of aggressive fish and, uh, like I said, a little more spooling, but they're just a lot of fun to catch.
0: Now, David, when you're targeting the spots versus the largemouth, are you using a lot of the same type of tactics, or is there some specific things that you really like to use when you're attacking these spotted bass?
2: When it comes to spots, you can catch them on just about eight, all the same lures that you're going to use for uh, the largemouth. They kind of got branded as a, a little worm fish, which actually, right. they do like that, but I've caught plenty of spotted bass on just the same size jig or topwater or crankbait that I would have been throwing for a largemouth. They have a tendency to get in certain little areas and, uh, really group up, and that's cool, too, because even in there, it's just all spots, and you just catch one after another, but most of the time, they're going to be the same size. You get a little frustrated because you're like, all right, same fish over and over. So <laughs> they're fun at first, but then it's like, all right, this is getting to be a little groundhog day. You know, kind of like, like white bass fishing, <laughs> huh? Yeah, exactly, exactly. They, they do have, seem to have... A, some white bass tendencies
0: yes well david it's been great having you on the show but uh as always before we let you go we've got a listener question from adam in knoxville tennessee just down the road from your place so here's uh adam's question has the alabama rig made as big of an impact on the sport as everyone thought it would last year and the second part of the question is are there ways that an alabama rig is being utilized other than just throwing counting it down for suspended fish like paul Elias did last year at gunnersville and again this question comes from adam in knoxville tennessee
2: well here's the tough part for me is that on the Elite Trail, we can't throw the Alabama rigs, so I've caught maybe three fish ever on one. But, uh, you know, I think it, when it first came out, it was unbelievable the amount of focus and attention that one lure had. I've never seen anything like it. You know, I mean, look at the price of what that piece of wire is still selling for. It's just crazy. I mean, you can make them at home, and but yet, you know, they're selling them for 25 $30 for them. So It's amazing. It kind of shows how important it is for a guy to catch a fish, because we're willing to pay that much more for a bait, thinking it's the magic bullet. But uh, it really has turned out to be not nearly as big a factor as I think it was uh, touted to be. But, you know, that goes true with all the lures. I mean, I can remember when, whatever lure it was, when it first comes out, it's just really that much more effective. You know, you can go down a list of them, just in soft plastics. I remember when a sluggo first came out, when that bait, the soft plastic jerkbait, mm-hmm. which, man, I think you could catch every fish in a lake on that thing. And, it, you know, and the Cinco was the same way, and, uh, you know, there's baits that when they first come out just seem to be just so good, but then they kind of plateau and they sort of found niche. It shows how adaptive the bass are to our techniques, you know, how we have to keep changing. I mean, if we don't, a redheaded Lucky 13 would still be a fish catching and you know. (laughs) It's not what it once was. And I think the same holds true for that lure as well. As far as other techniques, I don't know of any other one because, I mean, to be honest with you, the few times I've thrown one, it's basically a grappling hook. You can't get it near anything. Anything it <laughs> gets near stuck. I mean it's just so to round cover or let it get to the bottom, you know, you're basically going to have to use that as an open water bait because of all those gaff hooks sticking out there, you know. That's the reason for the 80 and 100 pound braid tied to it because otherwise, 30 bucks for just the wires and then you add all the baits on there, you know, it's an expensive bait to be whizzing out there with open hooks like that. That's really its best place is that open water. So uh, I think until we figure out some way to cover up the hooks or... Making a little more weedless, maybe we'll see some other new improved Alabama reeks to come. Well,
1: David, I've seen actually. It's funny you bring it up. Uh, speaking about the fifty and eighty pound braid, because I've seen a few rods broken as a result of trying to get that a little too close to cover and people yanking on them. And that braids a lot less forgiving than the old uh, fluorocarbon.
2: <laughs> You're kidding, and you know even that braid. Look how much it's changed over the past few years. We've got just umpteen versions of itself. So, you know, once something first comes out, that's not the end of it. There's gonna- going to be a lot of evolution from that point on and I think to me that's going to be the most interesting thing to see is what is going to be made of that idea that concept of a school of fish
1: everything seems to have its life cycle and kind of morphs into its own uh, place within the fishing and speaking of life cycle unfortunately we've we've reached uh, the end of our life cycle here with our interview I know you have things to do but I want to give a shout out to Adam and thanks for sending in your question and a big thanks to you David for investing really in our fishing education and, and being part of Bass Edge anything you'd like to add before we close this down no no
2: just just to invite everybody be sure if you've got kids or you know some kids in your area, so take them fishing because this is a great sport and you can spend as much or as little you don't have to spend a ton I mean I when I started fishing I was a kid fishing in a ditch that didn't have any fish in it but I didn't know that so but it was still fun but be sure to pass this on because it's a lifestyle that uh, really needs to continue Well, certainly
1: good advice there. We are going to take a short break, and when we return, let's talk a little jerkbaiting. You're listening to Bass Edge.
3: At Legend Boats, we have one agenda. To build the finest bass boat on the water, it's our passion. Our hand-laid hulls and 0 tolerance stringer and transom system give you a smooth, dry ride, even in the rough stuff. The Alpha 211 with its massive fishing platform. The Alpha 199, fast and stable. And coming soon, the Alpha 191, a 19-footer with a style, attitude, and a price value all its own. Legend boats. Catch the wave. Ride with a legend.
4: Bass Edge, Season 3, now on DVD at BassEdge.com.
1: Hi, I'm Brent Chapman, 2012 Bassmaster Angler of the Year, and you're tuned in to Bass Edge Radio. We're listening to David talk about bait. Man, it's, it's that time of year. You know, the bait is highly, highly active. They're just in droves. And it almost, in in some of these pockets, it literally looks like you could walk across the bait that they're so thick.
0: For sure. Um, you know, we find that, you know, being a guide down here at Lake Amistad, Aaron, we, you know, we have a lot of grass down here. And I think other places i fished in the fall, it's much more prevalent to see a lot of that bait fish in the middle of the pockets. You know, down here, we got a lot of grass. So anytime you're associated with a grass lake, I think you still get a lot of those bass holding in those ambush points around the grass and those big balls of bait, as David discussed, will swim by, and he talked about fishing around some cover when it's available, and those balls of bait are there. But utilizing those reaction baits and and really working the areas with the biggest concentration of bait will often put you around the biggest concentrations of bass.
1: No question. I had uh, firsthand experience of that actually a couple of weeks ago on Bull Shoals. One of the days, it was it was really calm. No wind, as you well know. That can be quite a bit of a challenge when you're dealing with, oh, yeah. with clear water reservoirs. Um, so essentially, you could still see the bait there. You could see them on your graph. You could also see them you know, every once in a while surfacing. But there wasn't a whole lot of, of surface-level schooling that was going on. So essentially, you know, I just looked at the graph picked up the old drop shot, those bass were actually holding right underneath. Some were literally on the bottom. It seemed like once you were able to trigger that school, then your graph just exploded and the shad got active, but once you got one of those bass to bite and brought it up through those those bait fish, I mean, it was game on.
0: Yeah, oftentimes I've noticed the same thing. You might have to you know, make hundreds of casts before you get things fired up, but concentrating on that bait and continuing to cast, mentally you tend to think that, you know, why are they going to bite, you know, this little plastic thing that I'm working through there or cranking through there or maybe a spinnerbait or whatever it is. But eventually, David mentioned as well, hitting the fish or being close to the fish will make him react a lot better. And oftentimes that takes, you know, maybe hundreds of casts before you get that quick strike and then you can continue to move on and and keep, you know, fishing a particular area. And once they get fired up, a lot of times that can generate three or four quick bites, which can help out a lot and, and make for a ton of fun.
1: No question, and I'm, I'm just a, a firm believer that when you're around big balls of bait, like you were speaking of, the bass have to be there, and it's just a matter of time before they're going to
0: respond. Aaron, you're exactly right. And, you know, we've got Marcus Sikora waiting for us on the line to chat to him about a lot of different elements he was able to put together to do well in an event that he had just last month talking specifically with bait and making a few really critical transitions. So let's get Marcus on the line and see what he's got to say about more fall fishing.
3: Under the lily pads, in a lake near you, live bass happy and free. Until one man with a huge resume and immeasurable experience building the finest rods in the world changed everything. Gary Dobbins offers three full lines of tournament winning rods. The Champion Extreme, Champion, and Savvy Series. Dobbins Rods. When fishing is more than a hobby. This is 2012 Forestwood Cup winner Jacob Wheeler, and you're tuned in to Bass Edge Radio.
1: Our next guest relates to most anglers in Bass Edge Nation in that he successfully juggles his work schedule and family time with his passion for fishing. It's the 2012 BFL Kentucky Lake Regional Champion, Marcus Sakura. Welcome to the show, Marcus.
5: Hey, great to be with you, Aaron. Great to be with you, Kurt, as well.
1: Well, first off, you know, congratulations on your recent win on Kentucky Lake. And, and I know those multi-day events uh, can be a little bit taxing, but it seemed as if you were able to kind of step on the gas pedal each day. And if memory serves me right, I think you actually overcame a four-pound lead.
5: Yeah, I got really, really fortunate. You know, the first day of the event, uh, I had a phenomenal practice. There's a ton of grass in Kentucky Lake. You know, is just a pure, awesome fishery. Like most of the lakes were very to fish here in the Midwest, and the fish were really moving around quite a bit, and what happened was the first day, I really didn't pick up on it, and I kind of caught a limit, was able to hang in there, and then the second day, I caught all them on a spinner bait in the grass is what was going on there, and then the second day, they really got on the topwater deal, and uh, and I was able to catch them on one of those uh, Boeing topwater walking baits, fairly new bait to the market, really awesome bait, Um, I highly encourage you guys checking them out, and they got on the topwater, and the second day, I was fishing really far south on Kentucky, and we took out a Cataw, which is on Lake Barkley, so we were, most of the field was running 45 minutes to an hour before we even made a cast, and so I was fishing pretty far south that second day, and got keyed in on that topwater bite on top of the grass, and I left them biting on my last stop, and I was able to cull once or twice. Fortunately, I made the cut, and the championship day, I was really lucky. My first stop of the morning, after an hour's time of fishing, I was able to catch uh, 21 pounds, two ounces all on topwater, and it was a pretty neat experience to be able to go down there and catch them that big on that last day and be able to come out with the victory there.
0: That is an awesome bag on Kentucky Lake, and as we all know, that's a that's a fantastic fishery. Congratulations to your success out there. You know, it seems like every Bass Edge episode seems to echo the importance of decision-making, just like you talked about, you know, having to make that decision to go from your spinnerbait to your top water, and those are decisions that are really hard to explain, I, I know, but what separates you and enables you to make those types of decisions and those changes while you're on the water?
5: You know, I don't know so much what separates me, but some of the things that really go through my mind you know like let's say for instance in that event you know I caught a lot of four pounders three and a half four pound fish on spinnerbait and the first day of the event they turned to two pounders and they turned to throwbacks non-keeper fish and it really really lit a signal with me because it's been so solid you know my four pounders turned to two pounders and my three pounders turned to uh, to non-keeper fish I knew I had to make an adjustment um you know that lake and the majority of the lakes we fish here in the Midwest they're so full of fish that you have to do some a lot of times majority of the victories I've been blessed with take some sort of on the water decision making and just dialing in and, and trusting your gut and, and really that's what it was and you know that last day you know you also have to take in the elements in consideration that last day there was forecast for 25 mile an hour south wind and, uh, and on that lake it can create a treacherous situation as far as navigation, fishing and this that and the other and when I left those fish biting it was the furthest north point that I was fishing in my milk run there and I decided to start there on the last day and the reason was because I knew if I was going to catch them on top water that Day. I was going to have to catch them early because what turned into a rough chop an hour after I fished that place turned into a two-foot and a three-foot wave. And a lot of times when you're fishing shallow targets and structure and cover, that big wave will really kill that topwater bite. And I knew that topwater was a way to catch a big stringer. So it's just trusting your gut, paying attention to the elements, and always, always pay attention on the water. The pattern you're fishing seems to change a little bit. Don't be afraid to chase that pattern. If it doesn't feel right, don't do it. If it feels right, you know, you got to passionately pursue it, and those are the things that I really kind of focus on in, in order to make those adjustments and, unfortunately, uh, come out with the, the big W. Well,
1: Marcus, how many patterns do you try, you know, plan A, B, C, so on and so forth, do you try and come up with, as you're out on the water, you know, practicing and trying to put together a successful day.
5: Well, in the fall, the fall and the spring, but especially the fall, there's so many different things that come into consideration. You know, the fish that have been very deep, they're kind of moving up. There's fish that are shallow. So you'll have fish all throughout the water column from two foot to 25 foot. And I always, you know, try to put together plan A, plan B, plan C, because a lot of times in order to win, you need one or two key fish off of each individual pattern to come out with a healthy stringer. And so it's very important that you pay attention. And I look to look for at least two solid, if not three, back patterns, I like to know what it takes to catch keeper fish, I like to know what it takes to catch big fish, and then I'll just marry those concepts together, so where if I get fortunate to catch a couple big ones, and that big pattern starts dying out throughout the day, I can go back and I can catch five, because in multiple day events, you can't win it on the first day, but you can absolutely lose it, and so you have to be able to put those pieces of the puzzle together, have confidence in plan B, so if you do need to make an auto water adjustment, you have the uh, the confidence to do that.
1: Well, like most of us, you know, who are passionate about the sport, you have to manage your career, your family, you know, really kind of all simultaneously along with your desire to fish. Do you have a standard or a a method to your madness that allows you to maintain balance and and yet be an effective businessman, family person, as well as a consistent angler?
5: The theory that I live by is is work hard, play hard. And I just want to talk a little bit about how blessed and fortunate I am in all of those aspects. You know, Um, I married my high school sweetheart so she knew whenever uh, she accepted my marriage proposal that the Green fish we're going to be part of that equation you know <laughs> that's
0: so a critical geez, element
5: yeah. <laughs> yeah that's that's very critical you know because uh that's something i'm very passionate about you know my family is i have a four-year-old daughter and a two-year-old son and and uh sometimes it's difficult when you have to make commitments to work and commitments to fishing and then you have to have your commitments to family as well it makes it difficult to juggle I'm fortunate enough to own my own state farm agency here at beautiful Lake of the Ozarks. And I've got a great team of people that work for me and with me that I don't have to worry about what's going on when I'm away from the office. And, and I can really focus on the fishing element. So the strength of my wife and what she gives my family element, the strength of the ladies in my office and what they give my work element, really allows me to chase and pursue these tournament fishing events that a lot of times takes a serious time commitment. And uh, you get out what you put in. You know, one thing I've learned... and family, faith, and fishing as well, the harder I work, the luckier I get, but it takes a team effort to do that, and, and and fortunately right now in my life, I feel like I have an unbelievable team surrounding me.
0: Well, it always seems like a, a huge key to any successful angler is being able to have that balance and, and be able to have all aspects of life really really clicking and working for you, and it seems like, Marcus, uh, no exception here, and uh, you mentioned Lake of the Ozarks being your home lake. Those of us that don't know Lake of the Ozarks too much, that place is filled with floating docks, of course, and, and can can be a, a big factor in a lot of events now I got to know, the fall's here. You know, things are changing up a little bit. You got a lot of shed and pockets and some things that we actually talked about just a little bit ago with David Walker. But are docks a key deal at Lake of the Ozarks in November? And if they are, what are you looking for?
5: To speak broadly about boat docks, um, a lot of people, a lot of fishermen don't like boat docks because it makes it cumbersome to be able to access the bank or targets or whatever it is you're trying to do. But to speak directly about Lake of the Ozarks, let me tell you a couple things that I think are key components to this lake. Lake and how they apply to fishing here, and what makes this thing a phenomenal fishery. Ameren UE does a great job keeping water in the lake. So all year long, these fish have a successful spawn. A lot of the other lakes in the mar- in the area, the lake will come up, the fish will spawn, they'll drop the water off of those spawn beds, and those are all fish that never get to come and be part of our future. So Lake of the Ozarks always has a consistent water level. Now, the dock portion of that is very important because that dock creates protected surface area for that habitat to survive. So a lot of times, you know, a lot of secondary points, a lot of channel swings, a lot of flats, a lot of the things that fishermen look for to be able to target those fish have a lot of boat docks. So there's always protection, um, there's always forage, and those are the key things about these docks. So the docks on Lake of the Ozarks are part of the reason why it's just such a tremendous fishery. Now, in regards to fishing them in the fall, you know, I sink a lot of brush and I put a lot of cover out there and this, that, and the other, but I also know no matter what size brush pile I put out there, there's nothing that's going to give that bass more shade and forage to rely on than that boat dock. So when you're fishing in the fall, the fish a lot of times, the ones that like to get up there shallow, they'll get underneath those floats. They'll get underneath the walkway, the majority of the docks have a concrete pillar, so it gives them a hard target for them to go ahead and rely on and and, and use it as an ambush point. So the docks are very critical here at Lake of the Ozarks, and a lot of times they create frustration, but in my opinion, they're an unbelievable blessing to the success of this fishery and allow fishermen to pattern fish. You know, sometimes in the fall you get creek patterns where maybe uh, the last flat or first flat or any flat throughout the major creek cove or even on the main lake, you can target specific docks on those flats that those Fish are relying on. So you can really pattern fish because those fish rely on those dogs so heavily. So those docks are a big, big deal. Um, right now we're coming up, um, you know, on what I would call borderline winter fishing. One of my favorite things to do is throw topwater behind the docks, you know, buzz baits, throw them over the cables, and, and they just lay in there back there behind them docks because they feel so protected and so at ease, and it can create some exciting fishing at Lake of the Ozarks in the, uh, in the early winter season.
1: Well, Marcus, you bring up, you know, kind of borderline winter fishing, and it, it goes without saying, I mean, obviously I've known you a long time. You're one of probably the most established uh, jerkbait fish in the Midwest. Give us Marcus Sikora's Jerkbait 101 class. You know, what are you looking for? Colors, all the all the various things that go into that. The advice that I give people whenever I start talking about jerkbait fishing, and I, and I appreciate the accolade there,
5: and it means a lot coming from you guys. You know, I just love to do it. There's just something about a bait suspending around a target or a flat or a channel swing or something like that. And the only thing connecting you to that fish is just open water and a, and a little bit of fishing line. And it's just a tremendous way to catch giant fish. What I look for, what I always tell people, no matter what your level is, every winter, even I do it because even like at the Ozarks, areas change. And the lake changes every single year. So one of the first things that I always look for is if I'm trying to key in on something, what I'll do is I'll just find a smaller to a mid-sized creek cove in an area of the lake. Typically, north shore is usually the most consistent. And it gets a lot of that sun exposure that sits in the southern hemisphere. It gets a lot of that sun exposure and warms those black rocks up and kind of gets everything a little bit more active. And what I always start with is I always start with, if you don't know where they're at, but you're not comfortable pattern fishing, put your trolling motor down on a main lake point and just fish the entire bay. Start at the main lake point, fish the entire thing all the way around to the other main lake point. Take key notice of where it is that you're getting bites. Are they on the flats? Are they on the channel swings? Are they on the gravel? Where are they at? And really, really kind of pay attention to that. Now, in the wintertime, a lot of times what happens too is those fish will get bundled up. First of all, birds will have feather flock together. So if you find a bunch of really nice fish or you find one or two nice fish, that fish isn't the only fish there. You've really, really found something special if you can start catching some big ones in one particular spot. So they will really get loaded in there. Pay attention to those spots and then take that knowledge that you've gained from that one or two creek coves that you started with and start applying it to different areas. You know, if you're catching them on big boulder rock, go into the next cove, fish big boulder rock and uh, and those are the things that I start with when I'm starting to talk to what do I look for and where do I start that's that's ground one okay so Once you've established the pattern, another thing, too, is the elements. You know, wind is your friend to a certain extent. You know, if it's a 25, 30-mile-an-hour northwest wind, it's going to be unbearable to the fishermen to fish with. I'm not saying that the fish won't relate to it and it won't encourage a fish activity, but wind is always your friend. And when I look for wind, I don't look for wind that's blowing down the bag. I don't look for wind that's blowing across the point. I look for wind that comes in at a perpendicular angle to the bank. And that really pushes that forage up there, gets him up there a little bit shallower, and that's obviously whenever those fish are a little bit more susceptible to being caught. So wind is something I always chase, especially when you get like table rock, bull shoals, those clear water lakes. If nothing else, you can just chase the wind and catch fish, no doubt about that. Colors. Everyone's always asking about colors. You know, what color do you throw? What color do you prefer? What's your favorite color? First of all, color is secondary to action. There's a lot of awesome jerk baits on the market today that 10 years ago we never had the ability to throw. You can take one right out of the package, tie on and begin catching fish immediately with it. A lot of different colors out there, but action is always primarily the first thing. When I throw that jerkbait out there and I reel that thing down three or four cranks before I start twitching my bait, I want that bait to feel like it's fighting me back to the boat. It's no different than some of your listeners can relate to crankbaits, um, spinnerbaits, bill stuff. You want that bait to have a dynamic action. When I pop that rod tip, I want that bait to go left or go right and not come straight towards me because the longer you can leave that bait in the strike zone, that's obviously going to increase the success ratio you have. So colors, I'll talk to that, but action is a big deal. I can take 10 jerk baits from the premier manufacturer. I can tie them on, and before I paint them or before I manipulate them, the first thing I do is I throw them out there, I reel them back to the boat, throw them back there, twitch them, and I'll pick winners and losers out of those things based on the action. So I want that bait to really fight me back to the boat, okay? Colors. Generally speaking, whenever you have sunny conditions, I like a color with a lot of flash. A lot of metallic, a lot of chrome, any holographics on it at all, that really puts out a lot of flash. That baits those fish lay down there their eyes are on top of their head they're looking up there and they're seeing that thing you get a lot of flash so in the sunny conditions i love flashy colors standard colors it doesn't matter chrome blue chrome black whatever your favorite is is the one you're going to throw the most so that's the one you're going to cast the most fish on but i love a flash color in sunny conditions cloudy overcast conditions i love dull colors matte colors bone colors things that really shine out on the neon in low-light conditions where that bass can zero in on that particular bait. Now, have I caught them in clouds on chrome? Have I caught them in sun on bone? Absolutely. But the core principles are flash with the sun, boned-out colors with the clouds. And, and that's really what I look for, for sure, when it comes to colors. Modifications, you know, I have uh, David Ryan is probably one of the most highest skill set custom bait colored painter that I know and I work with directly. I'm Dave's custom bait he does a great job. He's got some colors. Things that I don't have the skill set to paint, he'll paint. You know, I paint a lot of times uh, in my booth at home in the wintertime. you got a foot of snow on the ground. What do I do? I take a jerkbait that I know is a good running jerkbait, and I'll just go ahead and modify it. Maybe I'll... I'll accent it with orange, maybe I'll accent it with purple, maybe I'll accent it with bone. All of those things, the only person that matters to is just you. It's all in between your ears. It gives you that internal confidence that you're throwing something not only a little bit different, but something that's modified, a little more personal. It's going to give you confidence to throw that bait, and then you're going to obviously throw it more. And when you throw it more, you're going to catch more fish on it. So those are some of the general scenarios that uh, that I talk about when I do with bait fishing. That is outstanding. i got a couple
0: questions in addition to this 101 class that we're getting on jerk baiting, and that is what kind of speed reel do you like to use? What kind of uh, action rod? And then, for me, most importantly, what kind of line do you prefer mono or fluoro? And what are the differences that you found between those two that may give you some advantage or disadvantage based on a condition that you're fishing?
5: Well, from a reel standpoint, uh, 6.2 ratio is about the perfect ratio. There's times a the fish will hit that bait and, and push it to you, and you got to pick up slack quickly enough. But also, too, the key component to fish Fish and jerk baits is really, to be honest with you, doing nothing. So from a from a tackle setup, a lot of times I'll throw a, a Gary Dobbins like a 682 or 683 CB. It's a crankbait series rod, 68, really really soft tip, but it's got plenty of bone. If I need to move that fish from that cover, I'm able to do that. A 6.2 Shimano Core is the reel that I prefer, and without a doubt, right now my favorite, undoubtedly, is eight pound Green Maxima monofilament. There's times that I'll weight my bait for a sink ratio depending on where the fish are in the water column, I may want that bait sinking a little bit. Sometimes slowly, you go on lakes like Table Rock where they're very, very deep, sometimes you need a quicker sink. But I want to modify my bait to create the sink rate, not my line, and for that purpose only, that's why I choose not to throw fluorocarbon. Another thing about fluorocarbon that I had bad luck with is in the wintertime, that water's extremely cold. If you get a hairline fray in that line that you don't know it's there, because it doesn't have the ability to stretch and you set the hook on a fish, a big fish, it hits it and it goes the other way, and you set the hook on that fish, it creates a weak point in that line, and I've just had, you know, unfortunately bad luck in and breaking fish off on my floor carbon. You know, you got extremely cold water, you got ice, you got things like that. So mono, without a doubt, is my favorite, and I adjust my sink rate with my bait if I'm going to do anything along those lines.
1: Well, Marcus, quickly, you brought up your description of sunlight versus cloudy days on your bait selection. Obviously, not every day is ideal deal for throwing a jerkbait but you know the light conditions are something that we all have to deal with on a daily basis break down when you're more bottom focused and when you want to remain higher in the water column using that jerkbait versus maybe throwing a football jig or something like that
5: well first of all in the winter time i mean i love to throw a football i love all
1: methods of fishing
5: i don't care what it is drop shot spinnerbait top water bait, football jig it doesn't matter i love all elements of it and i'm extremely confident with all of those methods. On the jerk bait, whenever I go to the sink rate, a lot of it depends on where I'm trying to fish in the water column. I'm relying on my hummingbird electronics to see where those fish are positioned in that water column. If I'm seeing a lot of shad in that 10 foot to 15 foot water column, there's a reason those shad are there. It's the optimal temperature for them. It's the optimal forage level. And that's also where the bass are going to be as well. So I'm going to focus on trying to get that bait in that 10 to 15 foot range or maybe shallower or maybe deeper but the key component to determining where in that water column you want that bait is paying attention to your electronics, finding that shad, seeing how they're positioned, because that's obviously what the bass are relying on their forage. So that's how I relate to that, Eric.
0: Marcus, this is one of those episodes where we're going to just have to do a sequel, and we're going to have to continue this Jerkbait 101 class. Maybe we'll go to Jerkbait 102 class. Okay, <laughs> but, uh, but before we let you go, we have a listener question from Adam in Knoxville, Tennessee. Adam's got a two-part question here so has the Alabama rig made a big of an impact on the sport as everyone thought it would last year and the second part of the question are there ways that the Alabama rig is being utilized other than just throwing and counting it down for suspended fish like Paul Elias used it at Gunnersville? again this is a question from Adam in Knoxville Tennessee
5: Adam that's a great question you know I think when the Alabama rig came out I think you know me personally, my first opinion of it was it's going to take some of the integrity out of the sport. Multiple hooks and something that I honestly think is on the of DNA code. I think you are catching fish nowadays that were uncatchable because I think that some of the DNA code of that fish is target multiple schools where we as fishermen have always targeted, you know, presented individual bait. So my first impression was I was not a fan of it. Having thrown it, Having seen what it's done to the industry, I am a huge fan of it. Number one, it's gotten people fishing that normally don't fish. They've gotten excited about it. There's a buzz about it. Everybody's talking about it. And the more people we can have enjoying our sports, the better off we're all going to be. So from the aspect of getting people back on the water, it's done that. So kudos to that delivery system. The Alabama rig, in my opinion, is one of the most lethal presentations you can have. It catches big fish. End of story, period, and over. So, it's exciting. You know, all of those times we've heard in clear water, you gotta throw six pound test line, you gotta throw this finesse bait. You know, now we're throwing 65 pound braid with five swivels and five baits and five wires, and we're just thundering them on it. So, has it made an impact? Absolutely. And in my opinion, 100% positive. Bait manufacturers sold more soft plastics and more terminal tackle last year than any year that I can remember. So when we as fishermen have a bait that catches more fish and the people we rely on that need to be successful in business in order for us to have the premier products that we rely on, it's a win-win. Now, are there ways that it's being utilized other than just throwing it and counting it down? Absolutely. I can't tell you how many times last fall is when I started throwing it for the first time. Fish it like a spinnerbait. Throw it at the bank. Land it on the water's edge and reel it back to the boat just out of sight. You'd be surprised what you catch. You'll catch giants. They absolutely kill it. Fish it out over deep trees. A lot of times, you know, on Table Rock Lake Bull Shoals, you got these trees that top out in 60 foot of water. It's so painful to try to fish that deep. You can put heavier jig heads on that bait. You can get it down and you can effectively fish a water column that was so painful to fish before. The sheer usage of that bait is absolutely phenomenal from zero to five foot to 50 foot plus now all of a sudden we have a method to go ahead and pursue the bass that we're trying to catch and and for that it's another really really awesome thing in the fishing industry right now
0: that's a great response marcus and and congrats to adam for having his question chosen and answered on the air also hats off to marcus for his in-depth analysis of jerk baiting like i said we're gonna have to have jerk baiting 102 here shortly on bass edge radio anything you'd like to add marcus
5: Not really. You know, if there's anything I can ever do to help you or any of your listeners, I'd be more than happy to. Um, Passionate about the sport we all share and anything I can do to help anybody, uh, I would love the opportunity to do so. So I appreciate the opportunity to be with you guys today.
0: Well, Marcus, we appreciate you being with us. And we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Bass Edge.
3: Why did they consistently
1: win? Why did they know about all the latest and greatest baits? BassTackleDepot.com, of course. BassTackleDepot.com is your headquarters for all your bass fishing needs. With over 100 different manufacturers in stock, including Dobbins Rods, Bassaholics Clothing, Boat Bling Cleaning Products, Black Dog, Pepper Baits, Gene LaRue, Jackalure Company, McCoy Line, not to mention a talented staff of hardcore anglers ready to assist your every need. It's no wonder Bass Tackle Depot is where the pros shop.
4: You're listening to Bass Edge Radio with Aaron Martin and Kurt Dove.
1: really said it best when you closed out there with Marcus. I'm just really not sure what more that we can add on Jerkbait 101. I I definitely think it's going to be a conversation we need to pick up at a later date and and see what else he has to say.
0: Yeah, I agree. You know, Marcus, uh, obviously very proficient uh, You know, with the Jerkbait fishing and and has a lot to offer all of us uh, in how to better work that particular lure and how he tends to attack the waterways with that presentation. But one thing that's really interesting is, is we talked a little bit about it and Marcus mentioned he liked to use the eight pound monofilament. That seems a little bit light, but you know, that gives you a lot of advantages too. I can really see how that could help you, especially with monofilament line. The bait's going to have a little bit more action than it is with fluorocarbon. He talked several times about how the fluorocarbon is going to affect the depth of the bait and and also how he likes to reel down his jerk bait before he begins to move it. You know, and he also had a couple other interesting things to say about how he goes about working the bait. One really, key point he mentioned that I picked up on was that the most important thing about jerkbait fishing is doing nothing with it. So uh, it's almost like Cinco fishing. You know, it's got its own little action and its own interest by the fish. So it's important not to overwork that bait and kind of let it do its thing, be able to sit there and suspend in the fish's column. And it gives those fish a really good chance to uh, see what's going on. And oftentimes when you have cold fronts or you get in these colder weather situations, the fish don't react quite as quickly as they might in the summertime, so it leaves that bait in the strike zone a little bit longer.
1: Well, I'm good at doing nothing, I can tell you that for sure, so um, (laughs) you know, but seriously, those were always the people that I worried about. Back in the day, when they used to have the captain's chairs on the old-style bass boats (laughs) with the armrest, it was those guys that I was most worried about, because you knew darn well they were going to make a cast, get it down in the strike zone, and if they were smokers, they were going to sit back, light up a cigarette, and smoke a cigarette before they ever touch the bait again, and I think the important thing to realize of what marcus was talking about is what you said kurt let the bait do the work it's kind of like golf you have a, a nine iron and an eight iron and a seven iron so on and so forth you have the same swing but let the bait do the work and that line deal really got to me because it got me thinking you know here most of us are touting the fluorocarbon because it sinks and it has more sensitivity in that but really he likes to control the sink ratio of his bait based upon adding weights or doesn't want to take that risk if he does have a nick in the line. So, well done. Very, very good stuff.
0: Yeah, one thing also just to add about the nick of the line, I've noticed with fluorocarbons as well, you know, when you get them in that cold water situation, they tend to brittle up on you a little bit. I've had an experience where, you know, I've been flipping a jig and it's really cold water. That fluorocarbon becomes more brittle in colder weather. So, it just goes to prove, although there's advancements in fishing, especially with line, you know, from the mono to the braids to the fluorocarbon. and the way that you know all these different things have come to us there's no one particular element or type of line that is great for all situations you still need to utilize all of them because they're going to give you small advantages and different techniques throughout your fishing
1: absolutely i learned a lot out of today's episode now it's just a matter of time getting out and actually putting those things into practice kurt hey i just want to remind everybody don't forget four big winners announced as part of that kill guard giveaway that we promoted there for the last couple months so be sure don't forget to check the Bass Edge Facebook or the Keelguard Facebook page to see if you were chosen as part of that giveaway.
0: Yeah, and thanks to Keelguard for being involved with Bass Edge and providing our listeners with some great products. Remember to like Keelguard's fan page on Facebook and check out their entire line of products because they offer a lot more than just underwater craft skid plates. You know, they have a lot of different things that you can utilize for your boats and, and your other watercraft. So check out keelguard.com and see their entire line of products as it can have a great effect for your fishing needs.
1: Well, speaking of fishing needs, I feel the need to actually maybe try and get out on the water a little bit today. So in the meantime, we want to thank you for tuning in to Bass Edge Radio. If you feel so inclined, get on to iTunes, give us a rating, let us know what you think. This is episode 149, November 2012. For Kurt Dove, I am Aaron Martin. Until next time, have a great week, everybody
4: the edge is presented by kill guard kill protector for more information on bass edge or to shop at the bass edge online store visit www.bassedge.com and be sure to join kurt dove and aaron martin right here on another episode of the edge brought to you in part by legend boats bass tackle depot.com power pole dobbins rods mercury outboards and rapaholic.com